from up on I'm sitting in Studio B across from my good friend Benjamin Alida Sines. And I'm in Studio B sitting across from my good friend Daniel Chacon. Welcome to another edition of Words, Words on, on a Wire. Wire. Today our guest is the incredibly brilliant poet Cyrus Cassells, whose latest book is called The Crossed Out Swastika. It's a collection of poems by Copper Canyon Press, and he's going to talk a little bit about that and some of the other projects he's working on. Yeah, it's going to be a really, really good show. And on Poetic License, we have El Paso's own Viva Flores. She is a poet, fiction writer, and performance artist, and she's going to share some thoughts with us on Poetic License. Right, right. So stick around. It's going to be a great show. And you know what I've been thinking, Ben? Words on a Wire has a Facebook page. Did you know that? Everyone has a Facebook page. Yeah, that's true. Everybody. Well, not everybody. Some Facebook. people are snobs about exactly. Facebook. Some people, so yeah, exactly. They're snobs. If they don't have a Facebook page, they go, no, I'm sorry. I'm not on Facebook. Like they're declaring like, themselves I am as so a moral person. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I think that's funny that, you know, okay, you're not on Facebook. That's fine. It doesn't mean you're superior. Yeah. But, you know, Facebook can be, it can be very um, annoying and banal. Mm-hmm. It really can be. And I right. think that a lot of people have no idea of how to use, let's call it a microphone. You know, right. they, they have they have a, a platform, they have a forum, and they have no idea how to use that responsibly, or they use that in a way that can actually for the betterment of themselves and other people. Right. One of the things that I love about Facebook is, you know, I don't have a lot of gay friends in El Paso, mm-hmm. but I have a gay community on Facebook. And there are, many of them are writers. Right. And then we message each other and we talk to each other. And it's really nice because now I really feel like I'm part of a gay community. Absolutely. And, and it's because of Facebook. And they all friended me because they either read Aristotle and Dante Discover the Secrets of the Universe or the Kentucky Club. So they're very kind of literate. A lot of them are writers, as I said, and they're very literate people. And so I... I don't feel so isolated. And so Facebook has given me that gift. Yeah. And, you know, I, I agree that Facebook is a great way to build community. And I, I think that it's kind of a misnomer that we call them our Facebook friends. I think a more accurate term would be our community members, our Facebook community members. But one of the things about Facebook, it, you'll probably notice this a lot. Every now and then a friend, you know, quote, a Facebook friend will put a post and say, I am going to leave Facebook. And they give all these, you know, kind of sob stories as to why they're going to leave it. But... The funny thing is they don't actually leave it till the end of the day because they want to see how many likes they get and how many comments they get first, right? And I was reading this article by a, a neuroscientist. We had one on the show the other day, uh, Scott Weens, but this was a different article altogether. And it was saying that people get addicted to Facebook because every time you get a like, a, a little bit of dopamine, which is the, that kind of pleasure chemical, goes off in the brain. So you actually begin to get dependent on these likes. And you put a post and then you go back and you say, oh, what, there's only five likes? Or you get a post and, and you see that there's 100 likes and it makes you happy. It actually you know, uh, activates the pleasure center in your brain, which is why people get addicted to it. Really? And I think that if you use it as a tool, right. you use it as a way, a, a community, to, like you said, you know, it, I think that's a wonderful example, then Facebook is an incredibly productive tool. But if you get addicted to you know, having too many likes, you're going to desperately put stuff on it just so you can right. see how many people like it. Just remember... You listeners on Words on a Wire, check out our Facebook page. And like it, please. Please like it. <laughs> Stick around. We'll be back and we'll talk to Cyrus Cassells. Words on a Wire.
Cyrus Casals' poetry has garnered a Lannan Literary Award, a Lambda Literary Award, the William Carlos Williams Award, a Pushcart Prize, two NEA grants, and Best of the Year citations from Publishers Weekly and Library Journal. A professor of English at Texas State University, San Marcos, he divides his time between Austin, Santa Fe, and Paris, and works on occasion in Barcelona as a translator of Catalan poetry. Cyrus, welcome to Words on a Wire. Glad to be here. You're a peripatetic writer. You're, you travel everywhere. You go all over the world. You, I, I, in fact, when I met you, it was in Paris. I met you at the um, Shakespeare and Company. There was a the big reading that NYU was putting on. And then after Paris, you went to, I think, Italy, and then you, you've just been all over the world. You travel quite a bit, don't you? And How is it related to your poetry? Well, I grew up in the military. I'm an Air Force brat, and my thought traveled all over the world. In fact, when I was a grown person, <laughs> I would try and impress my dad with some place, exotic place I'd never been, and of course he'd already been there, like Asia <laughs> or... He'd been in uh, Udine, Italy, this little town in northern Italy, and he had been there before. So I think it's genetic with me. I consider myself a world citizen, and travel is one of the ways I, I continue my education as an adult culturally. You know, I study different languages, most recently French and Catalan. Um, I started studying Spanish when I was 12 in high school and was a top Spanish in student in my high school. Nice. I studied, I minored in Japanese at Stanford, so I do have a lot of ability and uh, sensitivity to languages. So. And how does it help your writing? I mean, are you able to write when you're, when you're traveling? Oh, in fact, my latest group of poems is inspired by a road trip that I took last May, and I was in Italy for five weeks and Catalan, Spain for two weeks. So, yeah, I'm very, very inspired, and I'm, I'm often able to write while I'm traveling. I'm fascinated by the fact that, that you learned Catalan and you even translate from Catalan into English. How did that come about? Well, in a period after my first book, I had writer's block for a couple of years. And as a young person, I got this crazy notion in my head that Barcelona was the place to be. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful I city. I myself there. And as soon as I got there, I realized I really wasn't supposed to stay there. I was supposed to go back to the United States and marry the person I needed to marry. But while I was there, I started reading uh, Catalan poets and translation in Spanish and English, and I settled upon the poetry of Salvador Espriu. So I basically learned to read Catalan. I mean, about half the words in the language are close to Spanish, the other half are close to French. So I taught myself to read Catalan in order to translate Salvador Espriu's work. Oh, wow. Oh. You know, that kind of struck me, what you just said about part French, part Spanish. I remember uh, the first time I was uh, I encountered Catalan was when I went to Barcelona, I guess, like a lot of people. I'm all, I, you know, okay in French, and um, my Spanish is pretty good. And I remember seeing uh, an exit sign, and in Spanish, uh, the exit is salida, and in French, it's sorti, and mm -hmm. in Catalan, it's sortida. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I go, wow, that makes sense. Let's talk about The Crossed Out Swastika. This is a fantastic book. This is a, an amazing book. It's put out by Copper Canyon Press, and it's, to put it in a nutshell, and you'll, I'm sure, describe it much better than, than we could, but it essentially follows people, some victims, I guess you could say, or characters that were affected by World War II. 
how did a, a young African-American man decide to write a, a book of poems from the perspective of people affected by World War II? Well, I was traveling my first sabbatical in 2005. I lived in the Jewish uh, quarter of Paris, and I also traveled almost sort of by chance to the Slovak Republic and to Poland, and I ended up visiting Auschwitz. And mm. my trip to Auschwitz, which was actually on the Day of the Dead, and oh, wow. <laughs> kind of spurred this particular project. And the first of the book is on the integrity of young people in World War II. I wanted to think about, you know, our most vulnerable citizens in the, in the midst of that particular conflagration. So that's, that was the focus of the book. And even though I think it began in a little bit of a sense of outrage, right. <laughs> the poems themselves are not outraged. There's something else. They're, they're quieter and more controlled than, right. than... I had gone to Anne Frank's house and my response was that I thought it was easy for people to pass through the secret annex, but not to think about, you know, where she actually died and how she actually died. So I was kind of angry about that. Mm. And I thought, like I said, the poems would come out angry, but they, they didn't. And I'm curious, Cyrus, the entire book is written in couplets. How did you arrive at that? As it turns out, the book that I finished, that I started before Crossed Out Swastika and finished after the newer book, The Gospel According to Wild Indica, was also in couplets. And I guess I just needed more silence and space and concision for these two projects. The farther I went into the Crossed Out Swastika, the more I felt the need for silence to kind of balance the language that was describing some of the traumas and, and atrocities that are, that are in the poems. Was it painful? I mean, emotionally, this for you, this book? Well, I think when people see the new book, my new poems are, are the most lyrical poetry I've ever written. The new poems in the Gospel According to Weld Indigo, and then the road poems I've written since last May. So I, I think what was happening was um, the Gospel poems were sort of balancing out the intensity of the crossed-out swastika poems. Because I started the Gospel poems in 2003, so I kind of wrote them alongside, and they did give me a kind of, I want to say, psychic relief from the intensity of the crossed-out swastika. When I started the crossed-out swastika, I was like, why am I writing this? Because my mother had died. And I just thought, you know, I was in, actually in mourning. I kept thinking, why am I going into this subject matter when I'm already... You know, in a difficult phase of my life. But the poems really insisted on coming through me, and they were kind of like my homework, I think, at that stage of my life when I was there in Europe, and I was learning a lot. And just sort of like a lot of people haunted by the ghosts of that huge conflict that, that even though it happened, you know, many decades ago, it still seems to be affecting us as human beings in, in ways that are that are tangible. I hate to say I'm not familiar with the other books. Is this the first book that had kind of an extended narrative to it? Or? No, all of my books are, are book-linked sequences. I, I, I'm not a writer of occasional poetry very often. Uh -huh. Like my first book, The Mud Actor, has a theme of reincarnation. Um, the Soul Make a Path Through Shouting has a theme of spiritual endurance. The third book is a, a, love, a book of love oh. poems. So, I tend to do things in projects or sequences. You know, I do that as well, Cyrus, but I, I mean, you, you pick, like, 
I don't want to call it a theme because it's not that, but but something that, that carries forth and, and that and it's a very integrated kind of narrative. Well, uh, I think what happens uh, is that it takes me a few years to figure out what the theme or the assignment is. You know, I'm groping around. Um, you know, I get clues, right? But I think when I wrote my second book, The Soulmate of Path Through Shouting, there was this moment where I was at a conference to do with Terezin, which was one of the transit camps there in Czechoslovakia. And this older man uh, started talking to me and telling me that he had been a child in the camp, which was remarkable because I knew only like 90 children survived that experience. Not only that, but he placed a poem in my lap that he had started to write when the Russians liberated the camp. And that was the moment with that particular project where I began to understand that mm. people were bringing their testimonies to me with the idea that I could create poetry out of their testimony. And that was when the light bulb went on for me with that project, where I finally understood what it was, because there was actually 12 years between my first book and Soul Make a Path of Shouting. And in those years, first I had writer's block for a couple of years, and I translated Catalan poetry, and then I slowly started writing these, what were for me very new, kind of human rights-oriented poems. So it was definitely a process where I don't always know what's going on for a few years. Do you ever write any prose, Cyrus? As it turns out, I can announce. Ooh, oh, <laughs> good, good. I'm glad I asked the question. <laughs> I'm in the middle of writing my novel, which I've been working off and on for six years, and it's kind of going like gangbusters. It's called My Gingerbread Shakespeare. And it's a novel that's inspired by the life of Langston Hughes, and it's a fictional Harlem Renaissance poet that I've created. And... um it's a strange book because it's sort of a hybrid thing where it's it's not a chronological approach to this fictional poet's life. It's It focuses on different places in the world where he's been. And it also focuses on his sort of romantic life. So <clears throat> I'm very excited about it because it seems like my lyric impulses are now going into my poetry and my narrative impulses are going into actual fiction, finally. We're talking to Cyrus Cassells, author of The Crossed Out Swastika, a book of poems by Copper Canyon Press, and you are working on a novel right now. It makes a lot of sense. When I'm reading your work, I'm not thinking story. I'm just in the language, and I'm in the moment. But after you've, you read the whole book, you realize there's these not only thematic connections, but there's also imagistic and uh, dramatic connections. So it makes a lot of sense. Are you finding writing a novel is just easy for you? No, you know, it hasn't been. I, I, even though I've taught beginning fiction over the past, you know, decade or so, I had to kind of find my way in, you know, through language. And fortunately, you know, I'm friends with Jane M. Phillips, and I think she's, in, she's, a, she's a fiction writer who, who, you know, makes her way through language, and that, that's really the way I'm writing the novel as well. It's not, I mean, it's, I have characters, plot, etc., but language is still kind of foremost right. for me in terms of crafting it. Like right now, I'm, I'm working on the Spanish Civil War sections of my novel, which has taken me many, many years to build up to do this sort of research and feel like I can actually do justice to you know, what happened right. over there. That's very point where you have to let go of the research and just write, you know, and get caught up in the beauty of describing things and, you know, you know trying to convey the characters as much as you can. Well, you know, I, I teach fiction writing. I've been doing it for, gee, I don't know how many years, probably more than 
most of our listeners are old. Uh, and one of the things that I've always tried to emphasize with students is that the, the greatest fiction doesn't grow out of a plot. You, rather, the plot grows out of language or the plot grows out of character need and, and that we kind of like discover the plot as we're going. We follow language. This is my very first time trying poetry and it seems kind of inevitable because you know I read so much poetry and we have so many poets on the on the show but one of the things that I'm finding as I finish this collection of poems is I have very little sense of whether or not the poems are you know and for lack of a better word good and so I'm relying on a friend uh, you know Heather Hartley um she wrote Knock Knock. Um, I asked her to read to read my collection. She's kind enough to do it. And, and But I just have no sense of yeah. whether or not it's effective poetry, for lack of a better word. Do you feel the same way about fiction, or do you know that you're, you're on? You know, I haven't even published my fiction before. You know, I've, I've just finished a big chunk of the novel that I've been working on like, for six years, where I could send it out. But... I've heard, I've shown it to a couple of other writers. The problem with me is that the fiction writers I know, including you, are all such accomplished people that I feel really shy about <laughs> sharing my fiction. Oh, I <laughs> you know should. how you feel. You, I know how you feel. You really, you really <laughs> shouldn't. It's, it's, and it's and because I think that, that you're on, on the track about about the, the language thing. I can't imagine me being a fiction writer without having first been a poet. I was one of the judges for this year's first Pan Hemingway First Fiction Award. And I will tell you the books I fell in love with. I mean, they were all good. They were all accomplished writers in, in their own rights. But the books that, I, that were the standards that I judged the other books against were the, were the books where I just fell in love with the language and I thought, these people are writers. Because yeah. they all know how to create. They all know all about plot. They all have their basics more than down. They know plot. They know character. They know dialogue. They know all of those things. Everyone did. But some writers are just incredible with language. And those are the books that I loved. You know, I was a judge for the Pen Open Book Award last year, which is a cross-genre award. And I ended up picking Gina Apostol's book, Gun Dealer's Daughter, for the same reason. I just thought her language was so amazing. And as the only poet of the three judges, I was a little bit like, oh, well, the, well, the novelist enjoyed the, the book that I chose and they ended up loving it as much as uh, as I did and we, we it was named one of the co-winners of the award so I feel the same way my standards are high, the language has to kind of soar off the page for me or otherwise I get kind of bored <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, yes Well Ben has been writing poetry right from the beginning, his first book was the book of poems and his second book was the book of fiction so you've been crossing genres forever with me, I've never written poetry before. With Cyrus, he's never, I don't think, published fiction before. And so we're going into this new genre. But I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it would be easier, not easier, but a poet writing fiction would probably produce something beautiful uh, more often than a fiction writer writing poetry. And I think it's because the essence of good fiction is language. It doesn't matter how great the plot is or how deep the characters if the language isn't there i'm not even going to read it whereas you know with fiction you know when you try to bring it into poetry it's it may not translate as well yes cyrus so i want you to finish this novel as soon as you can because i'm dying to yes, read it yes yes it'll be I awesome i think i can get it done by next year 
Okay. Keeping my fingers. Well, I'm getting up every day, and it's coming along really fast. Well, we look forward to it. Before we uh, we sign off, uh, Cyrus, you have a new book coming out. You said the title was, uh, can you repeat the title of the new one? It's called The Gospel According to Wild Indigo, and I just turned it in, so I'm not sure exactly when it's coming out. Okay. But it's a, it's a book of, it's very lyrical, it's two song cycles. The first song cycle is called Muscle and Prayer, and it's set in the Southwest. And they're very different poems than I've, I've written before. They're like ceremonial dance poems. Oh, sweet. And the second cycle, which is The Gospel According to Wild Indigo, is a celebration of Gala culture in Charleston, and the Sea Islands, and also a celebration of the resilience of slaves. And a lot of those poems have been published. So, yeah, it's a real vibrant, um, lyrical book for me. It actually feels like it was written by a younger poet. <laughs> well, you are very young at heart. I know you, and you have this exuberance about you. So, Cyrus Casals, will you please read a poem for us for this week's Poem of the Week? I'm going to read a new poem that was written as part of my road trip last May, now, I'm a person who lived in Rome in the 90s for about five years, and this is what happened to me when I returned to the city last May. It's sort of like my favorite city. It's called Jasmine. These are the days of Jasmine in Rome, when headlong emboldened April has dissolved, and the joyous braiding of sun and rain brings this sweet, steady broadcast. When I step from the suppertime train, that's what greets me. Roman hedges and walkways, graffiti-laden precincts graced with pallid flatworks, so even the most tumble-down niches seem breeze-swept, festive now with fragrance. Jasmine, the elated moments, shibboleth, the cool enrapturing night's cavalry. Even crone glorious Daria, my terrace-loving neighbor, confides. When Galliano came back from the front, his right hand was bandaged, but in his uninjured one, ah, poet, he held a fistful of jasmine he along the path to my door. How could I not become his wife. That was lovely. That was nice. Thank you. And thank you for being our guest today on Words on a Wire. Great. Thanks so much. The pleasure. License. Poetic license. Viva Flores. She speaks arrows that sometimes miss. Borderline landscape poet. Charmer, no, snakes, yes. I belong to this place. Here you can find me. I'm usually driving without a license, a poetic license careening through the El Paso streets. Speck. We are particles, less than rain. The rain drizzles and runs and then evaporates and travels again. But where do we run? When you pull aside the thick curtain and the sunlight shoots out and there you see them by the thousands twirling and suspended in the light and you wonder if they were there all along but live in a darkness or a haze that makes them invisible. 
Is that what we are? Dust that settles somewhere at the bottom of pockets or under couches, irrelevant places, waiting for just that flash of sun to be seen. The justice I seek is immeasurable. It's better I'm a speck, upside down and twirling. What could I possibly ask from the sun besides a moment of visibility before the curtain gets shut again because Grandma complained? They twirl in uniform the way we all do, seek nothing but measured movements and the gratification of motion from the whoosh and chaotic dance when someone makes the bed. It's the snap of the sheet that gives us life, that pushes us up and out, but always back, the backwards dance that leads to the wanting again. I'm a speck despising the dust the dust of heat and car exhaust in your face and tired buses, the meow of desert poverty and always the grimy film on my black patent leather shoes, the walking, ungrateful, nasty girl that is not humble, not humble in my spirit. She wants to wear the dress, and when the sheet snaps, she pushes toward the window, hoping for a gust of wind and a new dance or a new settle besides the bottom of nobody's pocket. I don't want to kneel. Born bent, if you love me, you'd let me stand. I can't sit still in the pew. I'm sliding and banging the soles of my shoes against the dark, smoky wood grain. It echoes and says, I am here. I want to wear the dress. Want to be holy and painted like Mary and the statues, the flickering candles and plastic flowers, my aunt and I standing at the altar, the plastic bunches we leave are dyed blue and unnatural, the flowers of the poor and forgotten cemeteries you only visit once a year to water the headstone. Mary... Mary, she looks at me and tells me to run, to run away and stop wanting it. Mary wants to go too, unfurl her hands, leave this tomb. Mary wants something new. The sacred is stale here, and people's prayers like folded notes and wants and all of their lives hanging off of their thirsty mouths. Mary sighs at the sight of them, all piled up like unopened letters and the faceless children, too many to bathe and not enough water. The wax is burning the candles, little rivers, and then Mary is holding my hand, our fingers clasped and wet. She smells sickly rotting urine and dried perfume. Someone open the window, and then Mary and I are running away together, nails on her feet, the wood breaks in our thin arms, releasing veils, raging against the blue sky. <sighs> For words on a wire, I am Viva Flores.
Thank you for listening to another edition of Words on a Wire. We'd like to thank our guest, Cyrus Cassells, uh, author of Crossed Out Swastika, for that. Uh, it was a great conversation. Yes, I really like talking to the guy. He is just such a nice guy. He's, he's a great guy to hang out with. I hope you get a chance to hang out with him like I was very honored to do in Paris. For Someday I will, but I'm just not the world traveler that you all are. Oh, but he was in Seattle, and you were there, too. Would you just didn't unfortunately get a chance to meet him because he really is a nice guy. And thank you, Cyrus. We'd also like to thank Viva Flores for her uh, fantastic poetic license. I'm Daniel Chacon. And I'm Benjamin Alita Signs. Join us next week for another edition of Words on a Wire. And until then, don't forget that the next book you read could save your life. I'm up on a tie wire. One side's ice and one is fire.